It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Right off the bat, we baptize him, and he lives up to his vow of being put right to the work of the church. So thanks so much, Eli, for reading the scriptures for us this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for your word and for all the work of your spirit. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would guide me this morning as I preach your word to your people and to your children, Lord. I do pray, Father, that you would guide our hearts and ears and eyes by your spirit. Guide my mouth, Holy Spirit, to preach the word of God with clarity and with truth. Help me to focus on the right mountains and, Lord, to uh, also downplay the right molehills for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. On June 16th of uh, 2016, Shanghai Disneyland opened up in the city of Shanghai. And it's interesting, there's a, a show on Disney Plus called uh, The Imagineering. Um, actually, I forgot to write down the, the show, but I think it's The Imagineer's Journey. And so it's, it's kind of a show that, that uh, takes you through the work that the Imagineers of Disney World do uh, in developing these parks. And what was really fascinating about the Shanghai Disneyland episode is they talked about uh, the reality that they wanted to bring Disney, but they had to embrace the culture of China in order to do so. And so Bob Iger, who is uh, the uh, CEO of Disney World, on opening day made this speech. And he said, we were thinking about how to do this. And he said, he, uh, he communicated to everyone that was there that we wanted to build a park that was authentically Disney but distinctly Chinese. And so part of the way that they did this to be authentically Disney and distinctly Chinese is they actually had many of the characters um, dressed in more Chinese-type clothing. The other thing that they did is they took away some of the Americana stuff that is so well-known in Disney. So they got rid of Main Street, and in Shanghai Disneyland, they have a garden, which is a little more like Chinese culture. They also realized that the city of Shanghai is built with enormous buildings, and big is everything to the Chinese people. So what they decided to do was to build the largest castle that they've ever built. And in fact, you know, if you've gone to Magic Kingdom here in Orlando, you know that you can walk through the castle in about 20 seconds. You know, there's, there's maybe a little room if you pay a lot of money for, uh, for girls to get dressed up in one area. And, but, you know, it's not like this enormous castle that you can go on a tour through, Whereas the one in Shanghai actually has three stories and is plenty of room for you to go through all of the different levels. They also redid Pirates of the Caribbean so that it would be more interactive, which is much more um, adapted to the Chinese culture in that area. 
as we think about this, on one hand, okay, I know that Disney sells a product, and so they, they need to uh, sell their product by culturally adapting to the places that they're trying to sell it. And while we as Christians are not selling a product, nonetheless, we do need to think about the, the ways that we communicate the gospel to a culture that is often very unbiblical. We call this idea contextualization. And as Christians, I think contextualization can be both a positive but also a struggle at times. The question of contextualization is this. How do we communicate the message of the gospel, and I'm going to steal Bob Iger's wording here, in a way that is authentically biblical, authentically biblical, but nonetheless distinctively loving to an unbiblical culture? And this is part of what I think we're called to be as Christians. We are not to change the Word of God or not to negotiate what it says. But nonetheless, we are to communicate it in a way and present the gospel in a way that loves an unbiblical world so that we do not create, kind of like I showed on the video to the kids this morning, mountains out of molehills that might prevent people from the ultimate mountain of the gospel. We have to acknowledge again that the gospel can be a stumbling block, and yet... There are also unnecessary stumbling blocks that we may want to avoid. And so I asked the question for all of us this morning, how as Christians can we be authentically biblical and distinctively loving to those we're trying to reach? Paul wrestles with the same reality as he brings on a new protege named Timothy. What's interesting in this text is that as he brings Timothy on, um, Timothy, who is half Jewish, um, you know, as, as the whole book of Acts or leading up from chapter 15 has been talking about the fact that circumcision is no longer required. It's not going to be required of, of Gentiles that are coming in. And yet Paul, after that and after this celebration of that reality, decides that it's going to be necessary to circumcise Timothy. And you may go, what just happened? Did he change his mind? I mean, why would Paul do this? Why would he bring on this protege and have him circumcised in his proclamation of the gospel? Well, let's look with the, with, uh, at the text and look at some of these details here in verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul and Silas come to Derby and Lystra, and both of these um, uh, areas are part of southeast Galatia. So Paul is revisiting some of the same places that he had been at before, and he is also planning to visit the synagogues in this area with the Jewish people. But he meets a young protege, a man by the name of Timothy, who the Bible says here is a disciple of Jesus. So Timothy is a believer in Jesus. And Paul, as, as was his practice, always had his eye on potential leaders. He was always raising up the next uh, generation of pastors and leaders so that he could plant churches. And there's something to that that I think is so important for us, even as we think about what the church is called to do. One of the reasons that I started the discipleship group um, a couple years ago was for this very principle. Now, not claiming to be Paul here, but I think part of my responsibility as the pastor of the church is also to be raising up young people that have leadership potential for the church. And so that's part of what the goal of that discipleship group is. That's something that our church is always to be doing. In fact, kids, I want you to hear me on this today as you are part of the service. And I know sometimes... 
it's really hard to have to be in the service on Sundays when you are used to being in children's church. But one of the reasons that we feel it's important for you to be here is that you are the next leaders of the church. You are the next leaders of the church. This is not just the adult's church. This is your church. And part of what the Spirit of God calls us as adults to do is to not only welcome you into this body, but to be training you up in hearing the gospel, understanding what we do together in worship on Sunday mornings. You are here because you are important to the future of the church of Jesus Christ. And we, we love you and we care about you and we want you to know that. Bible says here that Timothy had a good reputation amongst the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, I'm assuming that likely meant he had a good reputation amongst the Gentiles. He likely met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 to be an officer. Now, again, 1 Timothy 3 may not have been written at the time that this was happening. It may have been. But uh, what we understand, though, is that Paul was looking for men who had a good reputation in the outside world. Now, why I say he was probably uh, met with having a good reputation amongst Gentiles is because Paul had some concerns about how Timothy would be accepted among Jews that Paul was trying to reach. It's neat to think that Paul had not given up on the Jewish population, okay? He hadn't just moved on to the Gentiles and said, I'm going to forget about proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. He cared about them. They were his brothers and sisters. And what, uh, what we learn about Timothy here is that he was the son of, of a Gentile and a Jewish woman. In Judaism, the Old Testament forbid mixed marriages like that. And so, you know, part of the fear was is that if the Jews were intermarrying with other uh, Gentiles, then some of their belief systems and some of their idolatry could come in. And so that was a concern. And the reality that this Jewish woman had been married to a Gentile man caused Timothy to be one of suspicion right off the bat. If a boy also was half Jewish, here was one of the other realities, okay? So let's say like a boy like Timothy is half Jewish. If he was not circumcised, there was kind of this sense among many of the Jewish people at that time that he must be an apostate. He must not really care about the law of the Lord and the way of the Lord. And so, you know, while um, this is part of the reality of the culture where Paul is trying to reach out to them with the gospel, he realizes that actually Timothy, his protege, not being circumcised will be a major stumbling block to the Jews that he's trying to reach. Remember again, no circumcision is required for Gentiles. And I could even argue that it's not really required any longer after the work of Jesus for Jews either. But culturally, it creates another issue that these Jews um, will be struggling with if Timothy comes. And Paul might have imagined, you know, when I go to try and preach the gospel to them in the synagogue, one of the questions that's going to come up as I'm saying that we're not requiring Gentile males to be circumcised is, well, what about Timothy? What about that guy over there? He's half Jewish. Why doesn't he have to be circumcised? And, you know, it might have been a big debate that would have distracted Paul and the others from being able to proclaim the gospel, the mountain issue that needed to be proclaimed. Paul is trying to pave the way for the gospel, and he's wisely removing a stumbling block that would distract from the ultimate stumbling block, which we, needs to be discussed, and that is Jesus and his cross. And so by circumcising Timothy, Paul removes a stumbling block that makes it easier for these Jews to hear the gospel. 
he's basically taking an issue off the table. Let's not get distracted by Timothy. If he's circumcised, then we don't even have to go there. We don't have to have a discussion on it. We can just focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the principle that I think it teaches us this morning. If you're taking notes, this is blank one. Is that we are, the wise Christian removes the molehills that could potentially be mountains to the people that we're trying to reach. The wise Christian removes the molehills that could potentially be mountains to the people that we're trying to reach. Well, what I mean by molehills is not things that the Bible commands, but sort of those little issues that can kind of keep people from being able to feel welcomed within a church and come to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you a little of why I wear a shirt and tie every week. Um, I, I got to thinking about this this last week, and I've never shared this before, but some of you that have been in this church a long time know that back in the day when I started, I didn't wear a shirt and tie every week. And um, I started doing that um, a couple years ago after thinking through a couple different issues. And I'll tell you what the three main reasons are, okay? One is this, um, just a personal reason is that um, I came from a line of pastors in my family, my grandfather and my uncle, who were faithful gospel preachers. They never got behind the pulpit without wearing a shirt and tie. And something about that reminds me of them every week when I put the tie on on Sunday mornings is I remember their preaching of the gospel. And I remember what my job is to be following in that same line. And so that's, it's part of the personal reason that I do it. But there are two cultural reasons I do it as well. One is this. After I worked in Lake Nona for a little bit of time and started meeting people in the community and thinking about this area, one of the things that struck me is that this is a totally white-collar professional area, okay? And reality is that there's a lot of skepticism amongst many in the scientific community about whether uh, the church is full of people that are just uneducated. And on one hand, maybe it doesn't communicate much, but part of what I hope to communicate by dressing up is that actually... We're not an uneducated lot. Um, we're, we're people that respect uh, the, the law of the Lord, and we want people to feel welcome, and so that this doesn't create a stumbling block to those that maybe are in the community. Now, I know that other pastors in our community dress down for kind of the opposite reason. They believe that sometimes if you um, dress up too much, it may be a hindrance from people being able to come into the church, and I understand and respect that. Here's the other reason I do it. As I thought about church culture itself, um, I'm friends with a lot of different pastors, and I've got a lot of pastor friends that never wear a tie or dress up for church. And you know where they get pushback a lot of the times is not from those that dress down, but from those that like to dress up for church. In fact, sometimes that can be a real stumbling block for those that like to dress up a little bit more for church because they feel like it's sort of a sense of respecting the Lord. Now, on one hand, I want to be clear on this. We have no dress code in this church, okay? We don't want you to come in a swimsuit or, or wearing just anything, but the goal here is not to say, hey, you got to dress a certain way in order to come into the church. But part of the other reason that I dress up is because I feel like where pushback happens is from those that dress up that feel like it's kind of distracting for them if the pastor dresses down. So what I'd like to do is remove that issue from the table. So it's not even an issue. And you know what, I, I want to be honest here. I've never gotten any pushback on this here in our church. So it's never been an issue. But part of my goal is this, is that actually if I can remove any obstacle that'll keep people from focusing on the gospel, I'd like it to go out the door. And that's part of the reason behind that. And here's the thing. Dress code is a molehill issue. 
It's a molehill issue. We're not going to die over it. It's not the center of the gospel. But ways that we can be loving to one another, authentically biblical and loving, is to say, hey, these are the things that we want to do to try and remove obstacles that may get in the way of people hearing the gospel. Kids, I want to talk to you for a second, okay? As you think about the principle of this, some of you kids um, may have experiences with other children where they treat you mean or they say something mean to you, okay? And what do you want to do when kids say something mean to you is you kind of want to get defensive and say something right back at them. But what I want to encourage you to do is to think about what Christ calls you to do and if you can, to be loving back towards them. To not uh, like charge back at them with something uh, mean when they are mean to you. And part of why you do this is actually to say, you know what, I don't want to create a stumbling block. You are a representative of Jesus. Maybe you also have a toy or something like that that is yours. You take pride in that. It is always yours. And you know, sometimes when other kids come over, they want you to share that toy with them. And you kind of think, I'm just sort of afraid to do that. This is mine. I, I want to take ownership of it. And you can. But here's the thing is that if you can share it, then actually you can kind of love them in a way that Christ has loved you. And here's the thing, too. If kids are being mean to you or if you're constantly sharing your toys, what might start to happen is some of these kids might start to say to you, hey, why are you so nice to us? Why are you so nice to us when we're mean to you? Why are you loving us like this? And it gives you an opportunity to say, because of what Jesus has done for me. Because Jesus has loved me and he's given himself up for me. Therefore, I can share my toy with you or I can forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me. Adults. How can we be authentically biblical and distinctively loving? Well, one of the questions I ask us today is in our relationships with people in our community, what do we lead with? What is the first thing that usually comes out of our mouth? Are we typically talking about what we're against? Is that kind of what we lead with? Or do we talk about the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord? Do we lead with him? Let me ask you the question this morning. Is dress an issue for you? Is that a stumbling block that you, you feel like, you know what, if people were more respectful, then they should be dressing up every week? Or are we creating in our minds even, maybe sometimes, a stumbling block in our hearts that's preventing us from loving those that are different than we are? What do we think about those that don't believe the gospel? You know, I ask you this question this morning. Do people that have different perspectives than we do on things, do they aggravate us? Or do we really believe that the doctrine of total depravity is true? That actually, apart from Christ Jesus, people are not going to follow the biblical commands of the gospel. They're not going to trust in Christ Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit doing his work. And you know what? When we start to really recognize the reality of total depravity, and then we start to realize that it's in our hearts too, that apart from Christ Jesus transforming us, we would be as hostile to Christ as everyone else is. It starts to soften our hearts towards people, starts to love them, starts to cause us to listen to them. To what lengths will we go to be authentically biblical and distinctively loving to those who don't love Jesus? So we want to avoid turning molehills into mountains, but that does not mean that there are not mountains that need to remain. You see this with Paul's actions. Look at verses 4 through 5. It says, After circumcising Timothy... As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
in the churches and apparently in the synagogue, they were delivering the message from the Jerusalem council. Circumcision is no longer a requirement for the Gentiles to be included in the church. It's not central to salvation. And so one of the things I want you to notice here is that while Paul has Timothy circumcised, he removes that stumbling block so that they don't have to talk about that. Paul's not afraid to talk about the fact that we are not requiring circumcision of the Gentiles. They are saved by Jesus alone and faith in his work alone. Again, the principle here that I think the passage is reminding us is that salvation from sin by faith in Jesus alone is the stumbling block that must be presented and preserved. That's the mountain of the gospel that we're not getting rid of. That reality that we, uh, we need to make a way for this to be talked about. We have to acknowledge that there is such a thing as sin. And in fact, this is one of the mountains of the gospel that doesn't go away. There is rebellion against the holy God who has created everything. And in our rebellion against him, and all humanity shares that rebellion, there is no way for us to be in a right relationship with him. In fact, because of sin, we are under God's wrath, under his wrath against our our lack of holiness. And yet, nonetheless, our Lord sent his own son Jesus out of love for us who were under his wrath so that we could be forgiven by Christ Jesus' work. Christ Jesus is the Son of God, He is fully God and fully man. He became a human being. He lived and walked on earth in perfect righteousness and holiness, never breaking God's laws or his ways. Jesus died on the cross not for his sin, but for ours, for for the wrongs that we have done. And when we put our faith in him, his perfect righteous life is credited to us. Jesus, three days later after dying on the cross, is resurrected and now reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This is the message we proclaim. This is the mountain of the Lord that is of top and most importance. This is the message that we have to work hard to make sure that we're not letting anything else stand in the way of it being proclaimed. God uses Paul and Timothy's work here to increase the church, and many became believers as they paved the way to the most important topic. The Bible says here that the churches were strengthened because they centered themselves on the most important thing. Paul took away the stumbling block of whether or not Timothy was circumcised, and the Holy Spirit blessed his efforts as they talked about the letter from the Jerusalem Council that actually circumcision was no longer going to be required for Gentiles. The church was built up because the Holy Spirit was blessing the message of Jesus and causing many to believe. I believe what Paul models here is exactly what the Bible calls us to do. But how do we become like this? How do we avoid the molehills that that need to be avoided and focus on the mountain that is the most important part? Well, I believe that actually there is a great teacher, a great savior by the name of Jesus who displays in his life exactly how to do this. In fact, it was neat that the the kid's memory verse this morning was from John 4, because that's the passage I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes and looks for the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan woman. And uh, the reality of being a Samaritan in that culture was that they were the unacceptable uh, group amongst the Jews. And so for Jesus to seek out the Samaritan woman was kind of culturally significant. One of the things I love about that passage is that as Jesus sits down, the Samaritan woman comes, and she comes midday, which is a hot part of the day. And so this is when most of the women wouldn't come out to the well, but this unaccepted woman does come out. And Jesus does what? He asks her for a drink of water. 
Here's what's so significant about that, okay? For Jesus, who is a Jew, to ask a Samaritan for a drink of water is, is shocking. And part of what Jesus is doing, I believe, is he is acknowledging her humanity. That there is, you're created in the image of God. You have something to bring to the table. And he acknowledges that and respects her in that moment as he asks her that question. Jesus also sought her out. That's part of what the passage says is he intentionally went looking for her because the, the Bible says that the, the Lord is looking for worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And this Samaritan woman is one of those worshipers. Jesus was not afraid to talk to her and to answer her questions. She wanted to talk about temple worship and some of those things, and he acknowledged her humanity as he kind of dialogued with her. But he also wasn't afraid to touch on the subjects that nobody wanted to talk about. In fact, one of the things he says to her is, he says, uh, go and call your husband and come back. And what does she say? Well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, what you've said is quite true. You have had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. So what he's pointing out is he's acknowledging the fact that there is sin, there is rebellion here. He's not afraid to say that, but he's also loving in the way that he does it. He's not like hammering her with it, but he also is inviting her to come back and to be a follower of his. He also proclaims the peace of the gospel to her when not only does he say that, because um, uh, she says, you know, the Messiah will come and answer these questions, and he says, I who speak to you am he, but he also tells her salvation is from the Jews. He's saying that actually the scriptures tell us that salvation will come from the Jews and he, the Messiah, is standing right there presenting himself is the answer she is looking for. Jesus' model there shows us exactly how to be authentically biblical and distinctively loving to one who's unbiblical. To respect her, to actually dialogue with her. And I believe as Jesus models this for us, he calls us to do exactly the same thing. The incarnation also shows the great lengths Jesus goes to do this. And do you realize, too, that this is what Jesus has done for each and every one of us who believes in him. He became a human being so that he could seek us out, that he could draw us to himself, that he could die for our sins on the cross, that he could point out the reality of our sin so that we could look to him as our Lord and our Savior. And as he prioritized seeking us out as his own, so he calls us to model that same grace that we have received. Here's blank two for you if you're taking notes. The wise Christian prioritizes the stumbling block of the gospel through gracious interactions with unbelievers. The wise Christian prioritizes the stumbling block of the gospel through gracious interactions with unbelievers. There's a book called God's Space by a man named Doug Pollock. And um, this book is uh, kind of his ministry where he talks about the ways that um, we interact with those that don't believe the gospel or who are brand new uh, or have never actually explored the faith before and how we dialogue with them, both uh, being authentically biblical, I would say, and also distinctively loving. He uh, tells the tale in one of the chapters of his book that actually he was going on uh, to one of these retreats where he was going to be speaking at a church. And the night before he was going to speak, 
uh, he was sitting down with the pastor who was about 60 years old, and he was sitting down with the youth leader who was an African-American and uh, a younger guy, and they were talking to him about sort of his method, and, and they're like, well, what does it look like to, you know, kind of be building relationships with non-believers? And so he says, well, let's try an experiment. Let's, uh, let's just go out tonight, and we'll go to a local pub in the area, and we'll, we'll give it a shot. And so the pastor and, uh, and this uh, young African-American youth pastor uh, say, okay, let's, let's go do this. And so they go to a local pub that, uh, that the pastor and youth pastor had never stepped into before. This is deep in the South, and they said it was interesting. You know, Doug Pollock, he said he was about 40 years old at the time. We walk into this, this bar, and there's pool tables everywhere. And he says, everybody looks at us like, who are these three guys? You know, what are they doing here? And um, he said, we just kind of walked in. We sat down at a table and just kind of was conversing. And he said, slowly but surely, the people in the room started to kind of watch them. And, and slow, uh, eventually, two guys came up and said, hey, we're going to put a pool game together. Would any of you guys like to play? And so Doug says, yeah, we'd love to. And so they go over to the pool table and they start playing. And the guys, uh, obviously very familiar with that space, said, um, we've never seen you here before. Who are you guys? And uh, Doug Pollock says back to him, he says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And he says, well, that, that got them curious. And so they said, well, well no, tell us, who, who are you guys and what are you doing here? And Doug said, well, he says, I'm actually um, presenting at a church tomorrow about how, ways that we reach out to those that don't go to church. And uh, so he asked those two guys, he said, have you guys ever been to church before? And both of them kind of looked down and they're a little bit sheepish, not sure how to you know, go with this conversation. But one of them said, you know, I went for a couple weeks a couple years ago, but, um, but I never felt like I was really good enough to be there. So I stopped coming after a while. And the other guy says, he says, I've always been afraid to ever step in the door. And so Doug continued to ask them questions and just ponder some of the things that they said. And, you know, as they were beginning to make statements to him and to the other guys, he says, I didn't agree with everything that they said. But he said, I just began listening. Just began listening carefully and interacting with them. And he says, slowly but surely, as people in the bar start hearing the conversation, everybody is gathered around this pool table and asking questions to Doug and to the, to the other two uh, pastors. And Doug said, I am praying the whole time, just asking the Spirit to lead. And he says, as I do this, and as I continue to listen carefully to what they're saying and sharing their stories, they begin to warm up to me and talk about things. And this girl walks up and says, I got a question. How is it anybody can be sure that they could ever go to heaven? And he's like, bingo, bingo, there it is. The opportunity for him to share the gospel. And he said after about an hour of talking with them, he had this opportunity to talk about the fact that all of us are sinners. None of us have any way to be hopeful that we could go to heaven apart from the Son of God becoming a sinner, seeking out sinners like you and me, dying for our sins being raised on the third day, and loving us by his spirit to become Christians in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know that there was a lot of conversions that happened that night, but relationships began to be built. And it gave a great example of the way that we can listen, being authentically biblical and distinctively loving. I would tell us Christians, I think we all need to work hard to listen well, to speak little, and to uh, pray continually. All right? Listen well, um, speak little, and, you know, praying for opportunities for the Lord to open up opportunities to share the gospel. Remember, too, I've said this to you before, but the Lord Jesus is far more interested in bringing people into his kingdom than we are. He is at work. His Holy Spirit is at work. And the more that we pray, the more that we look to love the community that has often felt unloved, the more that the Lord Jesus will help lead us to gospel conversations 
where we can share the truth of Christ with others. Here's your key truth this morning. Because the saving power of Jesus' gospel is of first importance in salvation, the church must carefully remove unnecessary stumbling blocks for those we're trying to reach. The gospel is of first importance in salvation. Part of my challenge to us is this, is to be thinking about what are the ways that we invite those that are not believers into our fellowship? What are maybe some of the cultural things that we do that are preventing people from being able to easily come in? It doesn't mean that we need to get rid of every cultural thing that we do, but honestly, we always need to be making sure that we prioritize the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a first and foremost importance. And as we look to our Savior and Lord Jesus, we can learn from him. We can learn from him and his method of ministry and how he came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you for what it teaches us. I thank you, Lord, for Doug Pollock's story. And uh, God, I do thank you for gospel work and gospel interactions. And Lord, we do thank you as your people this morning, those who have been saved not by our works, but by the righteous saving work of Jesus that you sought us out. Lord, help us to be those that carefully remove the stumbling blocks that may keep others from hearing the good news of Jesus. Help us to never, ever remove the most important mountain, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that there is sin, the fact that God sent his son to die for our sins, to be resurrected in glory, and to lead us as his family. Let that be our message. Let us walk in grace and in truth. And Lord Jesus, help us to learn from you as we focus on your work through the scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.